This is episode 170 of That Shakespeare Life. Some of the questions for today's episode have been submitted by members here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get exclusive access to behind-the-scenes sneak peeks at upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions to get asked live on the air. You'll hear some of those in today's episode, and if you'd like to submit your own questions to be asked in a future episode, explore all the benefits and sign up to be a member today at CassidyCash.com member. That's CassidyCash.com member. Hi. I'm Anthony Bale. I'm Professor of Medieval Studies at Birkbeck College in the University of London, and I was one of the academic advisors for the Jews Money Myth exhibition at the Jewish Museum London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. became very much involved when he was about 12 years old or so. He started attending the meetings that they were having in Bawtry and and Babworth, which wasn't far from Plymouth. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. William Bradford is most well-known today as the man who served as the second governor of Plymouth Colony, leaving England for Virginia in 1620 aboard the Mayflower. Prior to this infamous voyage, Bradford was an Englishman whose life overlapped that of William Shakespeare, having been born in Yorkshire, England, when Shakespeare was 26 years old. There's no evidence to suggest Shakespeare knew Bradford personally, but the life of William Bradford shines a light on a huge aspect of Shakespeare's life, the presence and subsequent response to his religious extremism in England. Queen Elizabeth restored Protestantism to England in 1559, along with requirements that everyone attend Protestant church services. Many religious groups refused, moving to underground church services that were decidedly illegal in England. One of the people who attended such services was a young William Bradford. Relations with religious groups in England remained a tense tightwire act across two monarchs of Shakespeare's life, a situation we can see reflected in Shakespeare's Puritan character named Malvolio in Twelfth Night. The character is publicly humiliated while simultaneously painted as someone with whom we can sympathize. The duality of the character itself is a powerful reflection of the sentiments of England at the start of the 17th century. Efforts like the publication of the King James Bible in 1611 attempted to find a common ground with the Puritans, but peace could not be found, with the rest of religious dissenters increasing under James I and leading ultimately to religious groups like Bradford and the Pilgrims leaving England entirely in the early 1600s. Here today to help us explore the life of William Bradford, explain the distinction between Puritans and Pilgrims, as well as the reality of religious extremists like the Anabaptists and Scottish Presbyterians going on in England during Shakespeare's lifetime, is our guests and direct descendants of William Bradford himself, David and Aaron Bradford. David and Aaron Bradford are a father and son team. They are 13th and 14th generation descendants, respectively, of the Plymouth Colony Governor William Bradford. David Bradford is a life member with the Society of Mayflower Descendants in the state of Delaware, where he currently serves as governor. Since 2013, in conjunction with American Liberty Tours of Westchester, Pennsylvania, David has been portraying William Bradford and sharing Bradford's account of pilgrim history with senior centers, schools, and historical societies in Delaware and Pennsylvania. For the past 25 years, Aaron Bradford has shared a love for history from the era of Jamestown through the American Civil War at historic sites, educational venues, and in historical films. He is a certified interpretive guide with the National Association of Interpretation, interpretive supervisor with Coastal Heritage Society, interpretive ranger at Colonial Wormslow, and offers engaging tours and educational programs as Liberty Encounters in Savannah, Georgia. Hello, David and Aaron. So glad to have you with us on the show today. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
We run a membership group here at That Shakespeare Life, and along with other insider benefits, members get to submit questions directly to our guests. And you get to kick off this brand new section here for our show because we have a listener question submitted just for you guys, for both or either of you. Our member, Leah Callahan, has asked, how did you discover that you were directly related to William Bradford? And does that connection mean you now inherit royalties or something connected to the family estate? Our story, I think, is is a little interesting. We always knew in our family there was a there was a discussion of being uh, related. My aunt had gone back and done all the research, and uh, but apparently it had got burned up in a fire in the in the house in Elma. So we kind of knew it, but we weren't sure. And of course, um, we've homeschooled the boys, uh, Aaron being the oldest, and uh, my sister's the genealogist in our family. So she. Uh, we planned a visit to go up to Plymouth and when we were studying the pilgrims and she met us out there with my mom and dad and it didn't take but a few minutes before we went into the library. My sister laid out what we had and sure enough, they, they went back in the back room, came back and made all these connections right away. And it was like a, it was a really a neat weekend <laughs> to come to realize that we had that information. And as far as the uh, Bradford estate, I know William Bradford left his, uh, property, his land and his property to his uh, wife and children. But I don't know of anybody that has, uh, who's in the <laughs> nobody's, nobody's control of those letters things. about that. I see. Yeah. And I'm not sure about royalties. I'm not sure if you get royalties <laughs> for being, just being part of the family. Or just so. being part of the family. I don't know. Right, might some, right. send some letters on that. So <laughs> what about William Bradford? Was he a Puritan? Boy, that's a really good question, but it's a more complex question than it seems, because it depends if you mean Puritan as we use the term today and as it's been adopted today for us to understand the distinction between the Mayflower, or I mean the, uh, the passengers of the Mayflower and the Plymouth Colony versus the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was farther north up in Boston that came 10 years later. That's the way we kind of use the term today. Bradford would have said he would not have really known what you were talking about. You talk about a Puritan or a pilgrim. Either both terms were something that they did not self-identify with. If you go to Plymouth today and you look at his gravestone, it says William Bradford, Puritan, right on there. So the answer is that back then, anyone who was a reformer or wanted to change what was going on in the Church of England was derisively termed a Puritan by the people who were leaders or the in the church and, and people who were making derogatory comments to them. They called them Puritans. Like I said, he would not have considered himself a, a Puritan. He may have gotten made fun of by this term, but he wouldn't have used it for it to describe himself. He would not have adopted it for certainly there. They did not consider themselves. It was not like it was a church or a, a certain body of people that all had a very common set of beliefs. Anybody who was trying to reform what was going on, basically, when you have to go back to the beginning of the of the century, when you Henry VIII was putting in place, uh, you know, basically divorced not only his wives, but he divorced the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and began the Church of England. Everybody was a part of that Church of England. I mean, that was who everybody, and it was basically the same structure, the same hierarchy, the same, same leaders, and, and they were all part of that same church. So anybody who was sort of not obedient to what needed to be done or whatever was considered, you know, it depends to what extent there were moderate, moderate Puritans, people who were still trying to stay within the church and being good, good graces of the church. And the further they went to extreme positions or got heaven forbid, theologically heretical, then they were basically uh, threats. You know, they were a real threat to the church. So that's what right. the church Yeah. I guess two thoughts. We hear a lot of different terms thrown around, and Puritan is a very broad uh, term to use. And then even within that, you have the contemporary terms of reformers, even going back to the Protestant Reformation and a number of the the early reformers of the church trying to reform, trying to go back to the primitive church. And it is fascinating if you even go back to Constantine and how Constantine uh, of the Roman Empire, he said, well, we should have that relationship between this church and the state. You basically had a number of bishops for several hundred years who recognized that the state 
and the civil leadership, the civil government led by, say, the emperors, they had a pretty big say in it. However, over time, the church, we're talking over 700 years, grew and expanded their power. So you've had a struggle going back for hundreds and hundreds of years between the relationship between church and the state, the civil government and the church government. And so many of the people who influenced Henry VIII said, regardless of divorcing your wife aside, this is simply going back. It's reforming even, going back to that original relationship and trying to uh, reinstate some more of the authority of the civil government because the bishops and the church have gotten too big. That's one thought. But then another thought, too, is a lot of the contemporaries would call themselves reformers. And then eventually got to the point of becoming separatists, saying that we've got to separate, we've got to leave the church. We can no longer try to purify the church from within. There was also high hopes when King James I came down the Great North Road right through Scrooby, uh, where William Bradford and many of the pilgrims hailed from. And he was met on the Great North Road saying, all right, Elizabeth is out. King James I, you're in. We really, really hope that you will continue these reforms. And you had a court at uh, Northampton, and many of these Puritans were hoping that, oh, this is our chance, that we can continue these reforms. And King James I, he made a few reforms, but then he made it very clear that I have the divine right of kings, and there's no discussion over this. I claim complete rule over everyone in my kingdom. And that was a great watershed moment, I think. And you see a big progression even between these hopes of purifying, staying within the church, to that point of saying, all right, no more reforms. This is it. And I, being the king, claim divine right. And that goes against the separation of church leadership and civil leadership. And again, that was just a real defining moment in the experience of the pilgrims. England was a well-known destination point for centuries for many of the world's Protestants, including the Anabaptists who immigrated from Switzerland to escape religious persecution. And then later in Shakespeare's lifetime, you have immigrants from France and Italy also coming to England because it was seen as this safe haven for Protestants. However, the separatists, of which William Bradford was a member, felt that the Protestant Church of England was so oppressive that they had to leave England to practice their religion freely. David, what was the religion of the separatists and why did they feel like 16th century Protestant England was not a welcome home for them when so many of the world's Protestants were flocking there specifically in this time period? And Aaron, please throw your thoughts into this question too. Well, it really goes back to when they were really fleeing England. Uh, the, the Protestants was back when Queen Mary, right in the middle of, right after William Shakespeare was born, right in the 15, right, 1553 Right in that period of 1555, when Queen Bloody Mary was on the throne and was really persecuting. And, and of course, you've got the Book of Martyrs that Fox wrote, who wrote that right about the same time. Shakespeare would have been very much influenced by that. It was a very popular book and continued to keep alive this persecution that was done to the Protestants. Everyone, as Aaron had said, everyone was kind of looking forward to there being a, a more hospitable environment. Again, getting back to the what I was saying before, the church was still very much a copy of the Roman Catholic Church. It had all of the hierarchy, all of the a lot of the doctrine, a lot of the a lot of the things that were just very oppressive and dictated to you how you needed to worship. And what the pilgrims were all about was when they could begin reading scripture for themselves. This is where a lot of this influence came from. They began to realize that a lot of this didn't match up with what they were reading, and it was like. The, the simplicity of the Word of God and of the, of the basic tenets that John Calvin brought, both to Scotland and England, of the depravity of man and, and the gospel itself, the gospel message for which Christ's atonement was sufficient, and that, that simplicity of the New Testament church is what they were trying to live by. And all these other trappings and the corruption and everything that they wanted to, they, they just could no longer, as they would say, brook it. <laughs> they were no longer able to put up with it. And they the persecutions were not minor. Even the, the it's funny when you go back and read about what they were attacked for, you, you look at it, you can hardly believe it. You know, some of the things that just what they believed about about certain things like baptism or ugh, taking communion or just things that we would look for today and say, okay, well if you don't like that, just you don't have to do it. I mean it's like, oh yes you did. If you didn't do the things that they said it was like violating a law. And if it was had to do with doctrine or 
heretical things, it'd be sedition. We don't think of it that way, but remember the church and the civil government were all under the king. And that was the thing that was so, you know, we think about today about separation of church and the powers. Uh, that was very much the same thing back then. And so it was very much a uh, on the minds of the people there that they were going to be, especially James, when James came in, as Aaron was talking about, they thought things would be better. And he made it very clear that the Puritans and the Catholics were, he was felt they both needed to comply and obey. And if they weren't going to do it, he was going to harry them out of the land. That's what he was talking about at that Hampton, Hampton Court. That's when he made that statement. So it was, it was serious business. Well, you mentioned earlier the number of Protestants who did flock to England. And Bradford spoke, he mentioned the figure of 800 who did return back to England after Bloody Mary. About 300 were burned at the stake and were put to death. But after Bloody Mary's reign, then you did have that big return. And so it's been fascinating, even in preparing for this interview, just how dynamic things were in England in the life of Shakespeare and how much hope there was, how much pushing there was, as it were, but how much the pendulum would swing. And then, as uh, David mentioned earlier, too, the amount of fear and apprehension in England, particularly by King James. Uh, you had the Spanish Armada, where Catholic Spain sought to conquer Protestant England and return it to Catholicism in 1588. But you also had even the, the Guy Fawkes uh, gunpowder plot, uh, which is basically the Catholics trying to blow up the government. So if you put yourself in their shoes, maybe one can better, a little better, better appreciate um, just how much fear and paranoia there was, particularly by King James. And there's just a very brief excerpt of what King James himself said. He rejected these Presbyterian concepts uh, espoused by the reformers of limited self-government and he wholeheartedly embraced the divine right of kings. And he declared, these are the words of King James, the first. Kings are God's lieutenants upon earth. Sit upon God's throne. The king is overlord over the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. And so if you think about it even in spiritual terms, yes, kings bear the sword for physical death. But if you think of the beliefs of John Calvin, and the understanding that hell is eternal damnation, that is a very chilling, sobering power that King James is talking about having as the head of the Church of England. And so these matters of how the pilgrims, how they worshiped God and how they exercised their church government, as David just said, might seem kind of trifling, even like whether to wear the the overroads, the surplus, or whether to cross oneself, or things that might seem very trivial to us certainly don't seem like a matter of life and death. If you understand that to the pilgrims, they're talking about eternal, their souls. It really raises the stakes. And I just stand amazed at how serious uh, many people in, in this era took these matters. And also another theme, and I know that uh, my father speaks to this Throughout the writings of Bradford is just the brevity of life. Life is like a vapor. And so these are no trifling matters. And if you compromise your conscience and if you choose to obey men above God, if there's a conflict, you might not get another opportunity to make it right. And so I think it just underscores how high the stakes were, both from the perspective of King James, as well as from the perspective of the leaders of the, the church that Bradford and Brewster and some of these other pilgrim leaders uh, belong to. We've mentioned Presbyterians, Anabaptists, Puritans, pilgrims, separatists, and non-separatists. And these are a lot of religious terms flying around that seem to have very fine delineations. Were all of these groups considered radical religious extremists by England's standards during Shakespeare's lifetime? Were they all lumped together or were some of them more friendly to the government than others? Well, I would say, yes, some of them were more friendly. If people were always trying to walk that line, the pastors that, they, or the, that, were, that were in their churches, uh, they could lose their position if they were did certain things or if they preached on certain things uh, or if they just didn't follow all that was dictated to them, they could actually have their pastors taken away from them. So, uh, like I said earlier, all of the people, all of them that were anything that was against 
the compliance. There was increasing dictates of, okay, you have to do this, you have to do this. And there was more and more things that they had entire people that would go around and just being in attendance at church was something that if you went a month without showing up at church, you would be fined or put in a holding station, sort of a a prison that would be until you confessed or agreed that you were wrong or paid a fine. These were all very oppressive type things, which depending on how you, what you thought about that, you would consider very extreme. And if, if you didn't confess, then the last thing to do would be to banish you after three months. If you wouldn't confess or sign an oath, then you would be banished from the country. Shakespeare's father, uh, John Shakespeare, was fined actually for not attending church in 1592. That was the start of a lot of problems for John Shakespeare. But but that's just one very personal example to Shakespeare of how yeah, I mean they they took it all very seriously, and it was no you you this isn't this optional thing. You like in the U.S. especially, we think going to church is just a personal decision, and it was a totally different cultural mindset then. The example of John Shakespeare being fined for not going to church shows that there was a completely different relationship with religion and Christianity and even the Bible for Shakespeare's lifetime. You referenced the Puritans and the pilgrims reading the Bible for what's essentially the first time a a parishioner is getting to read the Bible instead of having it told to them by a priest. And there's brand new English translations of the Bible happening in the 16th and 17th centuries here. What was the place of biblical literacy in Shakespeare's lifetime? Would the average person have known these truths? The average person was required to attend church, so they were required to hear the Word of God. That was one of the things that most people don't realize. Today, we think you can just, if you don't want to go, you don't go. You don't hear the Word of God. You can grow up and not even know what it means. So yeah, there was people were very, very much knowledgeable of the Word of God, whether they uh, were convicted by the Holy Spirit and came to know God personally and accepted the, the atonement that or the sacrifice that Christ made on their behalf. That was a smaller group of people. Uh, but everybody knew what you were talking about. That's why I think it's amazing, you know, uh, Shakespeare, what is it, 1280 sometimes or something, he, he quotes scripture in his plays is what I've, what I've come to understand, which and of course, he used the Geneva Bible, which was exactly the, was the Bible that uh, the pilgrims brought over on the Mayflower. I read a paper recently that he used the Geneva Bible, and then there was also the Bishop's Bible. I don't actually know if the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible are different, but there was also a Douay-Rheims Bible that would have been around. It was actually written in France, but it was written in English. And so it was brought to England during the 1580s. So there was... There was multiple versions, not, and we haven't even gotten to King James's commissioning of an English translation either. So it had this huge place, I think. In Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well, Helena enters the scene and the stage directions written in the play says, quote, she's disguised like a pilgrim. And the word pilgrim is capitalized, suggesting it stands for a particular group as opposed to a more general meaning. Now, we've discussed that Bradford wouldn't have described himself as a pilgrim, but was the term pilgrim synonymous with Puritan being applied to someone like William Bradford in the early 17th century? Or is Shakespeare's use of the word pilgrim here a different cultural reference as opposed to talking about the religious group? The term pilgrim was something that was applied to the pilgrims uh, much later in this country. In fact, there's three or four times, two or three times actually only that that it was used. And it was always used in, in reference to being a sojourner, being a pilgrim in this, in a very generic sense, but it was also based on the uh, Hebrews 13, I believe it is, scripture that talks about being a pilgrim and a stranger. And so that's really the the only way he would have used the term. It, was, it wasn't meant with a capital P or a capital, same with Puritan. I mean, it was, Puritan was just not a, again, it wasn't a designate, designated term for a very had specific set of beliefs. It was a generic term, a derisive term used for anybody that was not in compliance and in lockstep and in obedience to the Church of England doctrine. Aaron, on the poster for the 1620 experience, you're wearing an outfit that looks like what we think of as a pilgrim today. But were pilgrims identifiable on the streets of early 17th century London by the way they dressed? Well, I'm so glad you asked. And in short, no. Uh, If anything, it might even be to the contrary. If you are going against the Church of England, and if you're even having 
what would be considered subversive meetings by having your own secret church meeting, then if anything, you would probably want to not draw attention to yourself or stand out. In that poster, though, I do have a beaver hat. And this is a very fashionable hat to wear at the time. Uh, You see, there is a buckle on this hat. And that's perhaps one stereotype that comes along later of the pilgrims wearing big old hats and giant buckles. You see, there's a buckle, but it's rather small. And the beaver trade is something that was very lucrative at the time. And beaver is a remarkable thing because that creature, certainly in the wild, is able to substantiate or to endure extremely cold temperatures. And it's very resilient in the rain and things of that nature. So to have a beaver hat would be considered quite fashionable at the time. And you see that I also have a, a collar, a linen collar. I do have a wool doublet that is sleeved. And they also have big baggy Venetian breeches. There is also some kind of a perception, perhaps, that a lot of these people that we come to know as pilgrims were very, very poor. And many of the pilgrims might have been poor, and yet a number of their leaders were not nobody, or they were not dirt poor. They, some of them uh, were people of means and of wealth. And so I suppose that it makes their sacrifice, and when they were fined, and when they were imprisoned, and when they did suffer great financial difficulty, it makes their sacrifices even more remarkable. So they were risking more, and they lost more as a result. So Yes. It's nice to see a different example of a beaver hat because I know my, one of my kids' favorite heroes is Davy Crockett and the, the hat with the tail and everything. And, but I think that does have a place in the, what the pilgrims used to make money when they did make it to the American colonies in terms of sending American beaver back to England for, as you say, these fashionable hats that, while today we associate them with the pilgrims, were really just 17th century dress. It's amazing that that's when that came about, too, because the beaver trade was was really the salvation of the colony from a financial point of view. It's what it's what allowed it to allow the colony to endure. That was a real lifesaver that particular. It's very popular in Russia and other places, too, where they would actually send the beavers. It peaked at that time in terms of popularity. William Bradford left England in 1608 when he was just 18. What was his life like in England prior to his departure? Was he an active member of an underground Puritan community prior to 1608? Actually, yes. He, he became very much involved when he was about 12 years older. So he started attending the meetings that they were having in Bawtry and, and Babworth, which wasn't far from Plymouth. His life is a very interesting one, probably more so than any of the pilgrims. I like to say he was very well acquainted with death. His father died when he was a year old. He never got to know his father. So his grandfather became the male influence in his health. By the time he was four, his grandfather died. And then his mother dies when he's seven. So he's orphaned by the time he's seven years old. And then he becomes very sick. And he's a basically a farm boy. He grew up raising, you know, working on the farm. And But he was one of the wealthier landowners in Osterfield. Uh, his family was, but he became very sick and was sick for a chronic illness for a long time. So he couldn't help out in the field. So his uncles who took him in ended up, uh, he wasn't too far away from the one of the few schools that was up in that area. Tick Hill was not too far away from Osterfield and he, uh, where his uncle lived. And he learned, it's interesting that the schooling that they got back then was a really long day. They get up five, six in the morning, and then they'd be till five at night with a two-hour break for lunch. And and but they learned Latin and Greek and all this. So I always wondered how how did Bradford learn all this stuff and become so so literate? Then there's been a lot of new information that's been learned by some folks over in England, Scrooby Manor area, which um, has been Caleb Johnson. They're finding out some new things that we did not know previously. That gives sheds a lot of light on their on their early years. King James I came to the throne in England in 1603 after the death of Queen Elizabeth, and the separatists started charting their path to the New World just a few years later. Was King James I more opposed to the separatists than Elizabeth had been, or what did the king bring to England that made things this breaking point for people like William Bradford? Well, there were a couple of things that happened right about that time which were quite interesting. There was a number of very serious plagues happened during 
during Elizabeth's reign, but also right around 1602, they, this very, very serious pestilence, plague of pestilence occurred right before she died in 1603. In fact, when she died in March of 1603, 1603, 33,000 people died in London alone from this plague or this illness, Wow! which brought a lot of fear. You know, I guess today we can kind of relate probably better than we ever could having gone through with COVID and just the, just the uncertainty. And again, that brevity of life that we were talking about here before, that this was quite when King James I, when Elizabeth died in 1603, and he, he immediately came down to London, came down that, that North Road, and a delegation of Puritans met with him along the road to say, aha, we need to speak and share with you our concerns. And, and they, they made this petition. It was called the Millennial Petition because it said it's, they told him it, it spoke for over a thousand. They were speaking for thousands of people, but they made all these claims and ch- charges and, and things. And he want, they wanted to see that he would be supportive of that. So that's when they held the Hampton Court later that year in November. And I guess they postponed it in January of, of 1604. They actually held it. And that's when he he agreed to do this uh, you know, maybe commission the, the printing of the Bible, which uh, standardized version of the Bible. But he listened to all their complaints. And uh, shortly after the gunpowder plot, and with, he got really, I don't say paranoid, but he got very upset with both the Puritans and the Catholics. And he was like, I don't want to hear from either one. You know, you guys need to obey. And he ratcheted it down. You see, he'd been king in Scotland for like 33 years. So he was, he came to to the uh, throne in England with a lot of more experience, certainly than than they'd had previously with with uh, Edward VI, certainly who <laughs> was you know six years and he was was done. But anyway, he was so intent on on making sure that they all complied with the and obey the church and the hierarchy of the church, and they weren't gonna, he wasn't going to do anything different about that. And so it was very very disappointing. This may get back to your question about why a lot of people decided you know. Maybe we better better leave. There was also a very interesting thing that happened in 1607, right before they actually left. They had this tsunami that actually came off the east coast of, of Wales and up that, that river that, that actually flooded the whole area. And the other thing that's very interesting about their faith is they always looked for, and this was common for all people, and I'm sure Shakespeare was included in this. They began to think about the things that that nature or these Major events or plagues or, or, or signs that were often thought of as punishment or getting your attention because of your lack of, um, you know, you're not living like you should or, or this type of thing. And also things that would be blessings. They would see God's hand in this because they had this, I want to say it, a biblical worldview that was a lot more prevalent back then. You mentioned that James was in control in Scotland. Did he have this same perspective on the Puritans and, and just this, you called it ratcheting down on control and throwing, throwing his hands up. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to hear your complaints anymore. I'm done. Were there, were there these same kinds of persecutions going on in Scotland before he got there or was the gunpowder plot kind of an impetus for him to to say no i'm i'm finished where there's a like an exodus of scottish presbyterians joining bradford on the mayflower or well my understanding is from what i've read is it seems like that was the great britain had very similar type experiences the reformation occurred in england just like it occurred up in scotland they were all part of the british isles so and of course john knox brought calvinism very powerfully to the to the Scottish country up there. So they were pretty much dealing with the same thing. Remember, again, the church was, it was the same Catholic, basically structured, organized church throughout both England, Scotland, and the reforms that they were bringing, they didn't have any problems. Both James and Elizabeth didn't really have any real, real serious heartburn over the theological issues that they had. In fact, James was saying, look, he thought the things that they were all bothered by were so trivial. He said, if that's, if that's the worst you've got, you know, these theoretical things need to be handled by the, by the trained priests and the theologians and the experts, basically. So they can handle that. You just need to do what, again, he was all about 
conformance and standardization and having the church uh, not be stable and not be causing problems. So anybody that was going to give him problems, he had a problem with. And that was really clear up until his death in 1625. I also think that this is just, once again, a, a fascinating, we even use the terms Presbyterian and Episcopal. Uh, Bradford used the word Episcopal when he describes the, the popery, as he describes it, the trappings, the, the symbolism, and the, even some of the sacraments that were used, the trappings of the Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And even though you have the Anglican Church, it's very similar to the Roman Catholic Church. And so Bradford described about basically trying to remove the Episcopal, Popish, and anti-Christian stuff, as he called it, to try to purify the church and go back to the primitive church and to remove those things that were not in Scripture. Again, those these words Presbyterian, Presbyterian, by the very word, it describes more of the limited uh, government and more of a self-governing church. The idea that you've got elders and deacons and you have a head elder. And so that's even, I think, a forerunner of what we see later on in New England with congregationalism. The idea that, well, it's not just one, the top down command and control within the church. This idea of a plurality of elders and the idea that everyone reads the word of God for themselves. And you have the order of husbands are responsible to raise up their families at home. But then when you come and assemble the congregation, well, then you have the ruling elders, the head elders, but they're all under the authority of the word of God. And so the importance of the Bible, and as David said earlier, when a lot of these Puritans started to read the word of God for themselves, and then to discern, wait a minute, that's not in the Bible. That doesn't belong. I just think even that term, so Again, I would just echo, right, I believe my understanding is that James I in Scotland, he was influenced by this Presbyterian style of thinking, but yet he objected to it. And I also think with the threats that he got once he got in the throne of England and Scotland together, he said, that's out the window and you've got to rally. I find it fascinating, too, even you go back in time, going back to the time of the Crusades and again, even even the Spanish Armada, I find it fascinating how in Eastern Europe, you had a lot of fighting against the Muslims. And yet, even after the Battle of Lepanto, and even after basically the Catholic Church stopped the Muslims' attack on the East, they then perceived, oh, we've got this uprising in the back door. We've got this Protestant Reformation that also must be stamped out. And I know that playing what if in history is a very dangerous thing, but what if what if there was more unity and what if there was more of a, all right, yes, let's purify the church. Let's reform the church. But instead of splintering and shattering the church, let's remain united to be able to have the word of God in the language of a people and for peace to be able to reign. So I just find it fascinating. Again, you've got this perceived threat with the crusades and you have the battles that fought or taken place in Italy and Eastern Europe. But then with the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church then went to war, as it were, against the, the Protestants, and there's so much division. And so you'd think, in a, in a way, wait a minute, these are people reading the Bible. They pray to the same God. They're all Christians, right? So why is there such animosity and such bloodshed and such fighting? And it's, it's just fascinating. So in 1607, William Brewster gets arrested, and he's charged with being disobedient on matters of religion, which when I first read this, I thought, oh, wow, you know, he's gone, you know, way too far, or this is some isolated thing. But it sounds like that was really more of the religious climate in the early 1600s. What are some examples we can look at for what life was like for the Puritans when Bradford and Brewster decide we're going to uproot our entire existence and, and flee the country? What was it that was driving them to take that. I mean, that action seems pretty drastic to me. It was fairly frequent where people, I mean, it was not uncommon, let's put it that way, that people were fined for this, that, and the other thing and, and for not following the dictates of the church. The thing that was unique or distinctive, I think, about the, the Pilgrim congregation, if we, call, we want to call them that, or the, the Scrooby congregation that became the Leiden congregation, was that they had a very 
personal relationship with the word of God. They were seeking the truth of God. They called themselves, you know, we talk about them as pilgrims, but they, like I said before, they, they didn't call themselves that. They, they were professors. They called themselves professors, not, not because they were academics, but because they were professing the word of God. And even in their, their, the way they worshiped, a, a lay person, a person who's a commoner or a common farmer, if he reads the word of God and, and, and could understand it and the Holy Spirit was in them, they could learn from this person. So the, this idea of tolerance was quite, it, it's a little bit distinctive from the pilgrims from the, in New England, from the, the Puritans seem to be more uh, authoritative is, is often the, uh, we often think of them that way. The pilgrims always were looking for God to be reveal himself and they there's their service themselves even they'd have somebody pray and they'd have somebody they'd sing song or something somebody would preach on a, a top a short topic and then they would allow people to talk about it and share their ideas and, and it was called prophesying again we think of prophesying as thinking about something that hasn't happened yet or something back then that was the term they used to prophesy was to to share how the whole what this holy spirit is learning teaching you and then they would discuss it. All that, that's why their services went all day long on Sunday, which was which is kind of amazing for most people, because they would talk about it, and they were always seeking what was called sort of new light. They were open to listening to other other faiths, other people, uh, different preachers, and they weren't saying, "Well, if you don't believe all the things I believe, we're we're not going to have anything to do with you." They were always open to this, and this uh, was something that was a little bit, uh, I think, misunderstood about the about the pilgrims and, and Plymouth Colony in particular, because they were open to people who had different ideas and they could learn from, because God could work through all people, not through, you didn't have to be a trained theologian or somebody who had all the answers. And so they were very, very open to, the, and they couldn't do that in England because they would be constantly fined in prison. They, they, Bradford had an interesting challenge when he was younger because his like I said before, his uncles were kind of prominent landowners. And if he was caught, you know, or if he was uh, going to these underground churches and stuff, you know, bringing disrespect on the family and this type of thing, it was, uh, they had some real, some times where they admonished him quite harshly to make sure that he would, he must have had to walk that line of showing up on Sunday so he doesn't, <laughs> they don't get, don't get caught not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, but then also wanting to learn more about the Word of God and learning from these these uh, devout, pious, humble servants of God that were that were still preaching, even though they were kicked out of their positions. So that's why they felt they had to leave. Plus these signs and and things that happened to them again. This the famine that was coming. There was a, there was a a real drought that went on 1607 right before they left to go. They tried to get away twice and they uh, were betrayed a couple times by a Dutch ship owner and. Getting over was not easy. Well, I, I think of them in 1608, Bradford led a group of separatists to Holland. And we think of this today as, oh, well, they just, they wanted more religious freedom, so they decided to go somewhere else. But this was really a larger undertaking than just that, because it was highly illegal, wasn't it? Yes, it was. You couldn't just leave the country. You had to get permission. You had to have a, like, if you wanted to go even settle or emigrate somewhere, you, this is when these, um, companies were coming on the scene turn the virginia company and the dutch company and you know these uh merchant adventurers that were actually supporting a lot of the exploration over in north america because up to up until then it was been done primarily by the spanish i mean the spanish were immensely powerful it was the peak of the spanish uh, authority in fact that's one of the reasons why the pilgrims left holland people always say why did they come to america you know well one of the reasons was this 10-year truce they had with Spain was going to end in 1620. And they thought, here, come the, here comes the, the, the Catholic Church. You know, the Spanish were very, and they were so powerful. It was, uh, though it was beginning to dwindle there with the, again, the defeat of the Armada back in 88, 1588 made a difference. But, and they were never the same after that. But, but they thought, oh, and in fact, they were going to, they were even talking about Mike trying to go to uh, South America. Most of your uh, listeners knew that. They, when they were thinking about finding a, where should they go, uh, they thought about going to uh, about where Venezuela, or Guyana, up, up, or Guyana, up north, the northern part of the South America. And then they thought the climate might be a little bit too much, but also 
there was a strong Catholic influence there. And they're going, why would, you know, that doesn't seem to be the place to go. We better better look closer to where the English settlements were in Jamestown and, and or even the Dutch settlement up in Amsterdam, New Amsterdam. So that's where they were heading when they came over on the Mayflower was they were going to go to, to the Hudson River. Not, they weren't looking to land up in Cape Cod. That was a that was something they decided to do because of the lateness of the season and they tried to go down there and they ran into some real terrible rips around Martha's Vineyard and they said, nah, our ship's going to break apart. We better go back up north. And they ended up staying in, in uh, Cape Cod. Now, you mentioned that they had left England by 1620 and that the Mayflower passengers had to seek permission from England to settle in Virginia. I find this really interesting, given the persecution that they were facing back in England, that they were able to obtain this permission in the first place. But I also know that several countries were sending colonists to the New World at this time, and many of the Mayflower passengers weren't necessarily religiously motivated. They were there as businessmen interested in growing you know, cash crops in the, the New World. But why could the pilgrims not just leave? I mean, th- th- I see a couple of options, the England kicking them out. Yes, please go, be gone. We're tired of you now. Or, you know, the, uh, quite the opposite of being like, no, you can't because we're angry at you now. So how were they able to finagle this whole situation? Well, they definitely needed the uh, the financing and it was something they couldn't put together on their own. And so they did have connections. Brewster was very well connected. You know, he was with the, uh, he was in the high in the government there for a while and knew people in, in the Netherlands and Cushman was also very influential. Winslow knew, knew people that could, would, would fund this because this journey was largely a church plant. I mean, that's a, not a particularly bad way to think about it. It was, even though for a long time, we thought the majority of, you know, half the people were the Leiden congregation, but the other half were made up of strangers or people who were going for other reasons. What we're learning now is even those people that they connected with were also had Puritan leanings. They were people that weren't going to go over with a, a group of wild-eyed, <laughs> you know. Yeah, don't hop on the boat. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that, you know. So the people that they ended up recruiting and actually to, to serve in other capacities to round out this voyage, to make it a successful colony plant, they were very sympathetic with the the beliefs. And, and so instead of maybe half and half, it was more like 80%, 80, 90% of the people had a very agreeable disposition when it came to their faith and living with these people and making a go of it. So uh, that that's kind of new. I think that's not a lot of what we've read in the past, but we're learning more about it. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of what we're learning from Caleb Johnson and others have looked in. Sue Allen has done a lot of work over there in England. She's a curator, I believe, of the Scrooby Manor, but has done a lot of the genealogical and, and real looking into the the backgrounds and the genealogy and the history of the other passengers that were on the Mayflower that weren't from Leiden and finding there was a lot of, they were connected to the Puritan or the reformist movements that were going on there with the Church of England. So that makes a lot of sense when you think about it too. And they weren't just total, it wasn't like the group that came over afterwards, uh, the Weston's group that came over and and set up West Augusta that were a bunch of young guys that were was more like the Jamestown model. They were coming for getting away from things, probably. In a lot of cases, you know, they get ready to kick them out of the country. So I'll, I'll go to America rather than be fine and go to prison. There's so much more that we could explore here and so many more questions we could ask for sure to from the... 17th century, you know, gold rush, let me make my fortune in the new world all the way to, you know, exactly what were Brewster and Cushman's connections that allowed the Mayflower journey to happen at all in the first place. I think we're all very excited to learn more and explore this further. What are some of your favorite books and resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, I'm holding two books in my hands right now. One of them is by a wonderful historian, William J. Federer, the Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It and the prequel to America's Freedom. And this is a book I've, I just found really does such a masterful job of stepping back and putting into context um, a lot of these different countries we've been talking about and 
the worldwide events that were happening. And also it's, it's very succinctly written too. So it's a nice, almost like a thumbnail. You can cover a lot of ground and get a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different key events and many wonderful quotes as well. Just getting a greater context for uh, the time period that we talked about and drawing those connections to the motivations and to the impact of the pilgrims. So um, this is one book I highly recommend. And then the second book I have in my hand, you can see the, <laughs> you can see how thick it is. This is called Saints and Strangers by in Leiden and the Foundations of Plymouth Plantation by Jeremy Banks. And I would agree with the statement on the back. I mean, he, no one knows more about the pilgrims than Jeremy Banks. I mean, he is one of the eminent authorities on the lives of the pilgrims. And it's been such a delight speaking together about the pilgrims experience in England. And this continues the story about the foundations in Leiden. And finally, William Fowler, professor of history, he says in this incredible work, Jeremy Banks rips away nearly four centuries of encrusted knowledge about the pilgrims. And it just really gives such a great insight in a lot of these new revelations and discoveries that we're finding out about the pilgrims and uh, what they did. So those are two books. I've got three, actually, I would recommend highly. First of all, of Plymouth Plantation is the book that William Bradford, his journal, which is most of what we know about the pilgrims comes from his diary. And of course, the other is uh, uh, Edward Winslow's um, and Mort's relation, Bradford wrote, and Winslow both wrote that. But uh, there's a new, it was a 400th anniversary edition that's just been published of Plymouth Plantation. It has a lot, a lot of background information, a lot of stuff that's really, it is really what, what gives us most of, like I said, what we know about the Pilgrims, because it was a firsthand account. The other really good book about these two books I want to commend to you is One Small Candle. It's the Plymouth Puritans and the Beginning of English New England by Francis Brummer. He and Bangs, anything by Jeremy Bangs is going to be excellent. But he and Bangs are also I had uh, are were involved in. This is gives you a good understanding of the faith of the Pilgrims. And another one is by Dr. Paul Jaley, who's the Plymouth Rock Foundation director. He wrote Journey of Faith: Why the Pilgrims Came, and a nice little pamphlet. And I I highly commend that as well because it's a very succinct summary of really if you want to get a real good idea of who the, the pilgrims were in terms of their faith both dr bremer and dr jaylee's books are excellent thank you both for these Research. recommendations we will link to these in the show notes for today's episode so make sure you go there to see the links to these books now david and aaron we ask everyone this next question here at that shakespeare life and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island my friends in england tell me i'm supposed to allow you the complete works of shakespeare and a copy of the bible so your choice would be in addition to those well i'm certainly biased but i would echo once again um, a Plymouth plantation I appreciate just the, the vision. As you read the words of William Bradford, uh, there's one line in there when he says, may not and ought not, our fathers rightly say that our fathers were Englishmen and came over this great ocean and basically were about to perish. And they cried out to the Lord and the Lord saved them. So you just talk about a legacy book, uh, a book of heritage. And as my father's mentioned too, the fact that, this book was written before Microsoft Word. This book was written before the abilities that we have today when it comes to the tools we have. This book was painstakingly written just to see the thought that was put into this book. Because as William Bradford said, that the, the lives of the pilgrims are a rare example and worthy to be remembered. And so I just appreciate uh, the words in that book. And it's just a great inspiration to see uh, the fortitude and also to see the love of Christ displayed in relationships, not only that the pilgrims had with each other, but also the relationships that the uh, pilgrims had with Massasoit and the Wampanoag American Indians and the people that they met along the way. Um, just the love that they had uh, displayed for another. It's more than just wishy-washy feel good. It, it's really can be inspiring and give us great courage as we face a lot of trials, both as a country and in the world in which we live today. That is an excellent selection. David, what about you? What would you take on your deserted island? I will have to echo that because the of Plymouth Plantation, the 400th anniversary edition is, I haven't got it yet. I, I, some of it's been sold out with places I've tried to find it. And I really want to add that to my collection because the, the edition I have is Samuel Elliott Morrison's, which is a, a good edition. 
but this includes so many things that they put together and added to it. In fact, they have a they have a brief cover or, or an uh, essay that is included in it by uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, which gives us a lot of the information or some of the perspectives about the Native people's interpretation or, or, or accounts of certain things. There's another book out right now, speaking of uh, David Silverman's written one called This Land is Their Land. Excellent, right? And, and I've been working my way and, and studying that as well. I also, which, which is really nice to have a good understanding of what went on from both Pilgrim and the Native uh, people's perspective. I've always enjoyed that. We've gotten to know back in 20, I think it was like 2001 or something like that. I think it was 2005. We actually had the orator of the Wampanoag tribe come and speak at our Mayflower Society. And ever since then, and just hearing him talk, I've seen some of his videos. It's just very interesting. And some of the things I've learned that they have passed down through their oral tradition because they haven't they didn't normally, back then, they didn't write things down. That was something that was brought to them by the pilgrims and the Dutch influence and the English that were very, wanted, you know, began documenting things. So to hear their very carefully passed down accounts of things has been very interesting because we learned some things that you wouldn't have found anywhere because you wouldn't have read it anywhere. It was something that they only know because they passed it down through oral tradition. So just to get a full understanding and a better appreciation for what the pilgrims mean, what they accomplished, I think is is something that Bradford does a good job of making us aware of what those things are. These are excellent suggestions. I'm going to spend quite a lot of time reading and catching up on all of these, I think. <laughs> they, the, some of them rival War and Peace in their length, but <laughs> I made it through War and Peace. I can make it through that too, I guess. Uh, so what's next for you guys? I know you are working on what looks to be the amazing 1620 experience. When can we expect to see that? What is coming from that project? Well, let me just give a brief statement and Aaron, you can fill it out. The 1620 experience has sort of been a, a project that's evolved over this past year. It's an eight-part miniseries that includes docudrama and also narration and historical content as far as Telling the pilgrim story as far as letting them speak. It's something that I've been very passionate about for a long time. And I know Aaron shares that passion is that we want to be a mouthpiece for our descendant, our relative, Governor Bradford. I don't want to give you my, in a sense, spin on it or my interpretation. I wanted to be faithful to what he painstakingly put down uh, in his own words. And I think that when I think about how easy it is to write something today, even though with all the re-edits and stuff, it takes a long time still, but how, if you don't like the way you wrote something and you cut and paste, put it over here, you, you constantly rework it. Bradford had to sit down and know what he wanted to say, what he wanted people to know about their experience and what God did through their coming to America and back in Holland and why they left England. And he writes this all down and he had to know what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it and the words he chose to say it. And I wanted to be faithful to that. So I, I wanted a way to share that with the, with people, because as I found in reading his word and putting it in first person, it is absolutely mind blowing as far as you read it and you just go, wow, that's what he's talking about. It's just, it was, it was just so impressive that I want people to know and hear from his words, not my words, not a script we write necessarily, but we want to share and let him speak for the pilgrims because nobody's speaking for the pilgrims right now. Everybody's got their own ideas of who they were and what they did and why they did it. They told us why. And he wrote this down. And we have a, we feel as descendants an obligation to let people know in a medium where they may not they may not be able to read of Plymouth Plantation. It, it can be a tough read because of the language that was used back then and this sort of thing. So it's just like reading Shakespeare. I was going to say, as somebody who teaches you Shakespeare, must, I totally get that. You must realize that. that. How do you make it accessible to people? And, and again, plays, movies, even you know, modernizing the language so people can understand it. 
is very, very important. And that's what we're trying to do with the 1620 experience. Eight-part miniseries that we're going to do. Hopefully have it out by by the 400th anniversary of what is commonly referred to as the first Thanksgiving. That's a whole other story. But yeah, by this November, hopefully. And you can help with the 1620 experience. They are crowdfunding right now to help bring this miniseries to life. And if you are excited about taking fabulous history, like what we have in Shakespeare's plays and bringing it to life through film, you can be a part of it. You can check out 1620experience.com. Aaron, what can we expect inside the 1620 experience? When we sit down to watch this, is it being told in, from Bradford's perspective? Well, thank you. It is a challenge indeed. Uh, We wish to faithfully tell his words, but we also wish to have those words in a powerful message. And in this day and age, the way to reach people so oftentimes is with the visual medium. So there's a few different ideas we have. I think you could could describe this as a mini-series. And we are also seeking to recruit. We have some rather large largely well-known actors who are behind this project, who've supported this project. And we're very excited to allow people that we might recognize, people from a broad range of fellow Americans, to be able to visit the words and the deeds and the examples of the pilgrims, and to also see how the pilgrims, this very small band of people, really embody the American ideals and principles of faith, freedom, family, and the love that they displayed with one another, but also community. And really to underscore and explore deeper, just what did their relationship with the Wampanoag and with the other uh, American Indian uh, groups look like? And so to tell this story through many different perspectives, the image being that as Americans, for us to come together and for us to look anew at the examples and words as accurately as we can together at the same table, as it were, is what goal we have for this. But in the same way, as we tell the words, we wish to be able to bring it to life. And so, for example, I've got a trusty matchlock musket right here. And so we're very excited to be able to be working with some uh, other people who've uh, produced historic films to bring this to life in a very exciting way. In addition, my father-in-law, for our wedding, he actually gave me this sword. And this sword is forged with domestic steel, Damascus steel, excuse me. It also has this wrought iron for the hilt and the sword has the name Victory. And we don't know that William Bradford necessarily had a name for his sword. But when you think about the symbolism and a sword being passed down, the word patriot, dare I say, to some as almost a negative connotation. Uh, but Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, he said that the love of country should be just as natural as parents love for their children and how patriotism is essential for just for a family to survive. As I'm sure we know, being parents, we make a lot of sacrifices for our children. Well, in the same way for a country to survive, citizens of that country need to serve and need to love their country. And so we're so excited about this opportunity, again, for Americans from different backgrounds, different of different stories coming together and uniting to see what is it that unites us and what are those rare examples that are worthy to be remembered and that are worthy to emulate. And so we're just so excited with the 400th anniversary of what's widely celebrated as the first Thanksgiving as Americans for us to be able to give this resource to families across this land and for us to be able to just keep that legacy alive. Thomas Jefferson, he wrote that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And it's also been said that freedom is one generation away from extinction. And I'm 14th generation from William Bradford. My, my son, he's named William Aaron Bradford. So William Bradford, the 15th. But for us to pass that legacy down is uh, something that's very humbling. And we're just so thrilled to be able to share this amazing heritage we have for all Americans. And our hope is that what unites us can be stronger than what divides us. So we're very excited about bringing this to the best of our ability in a very engaging and unforgettable way, because along with the 1620 experience, which is this eight-part miniseries, 
Uh, my father and I were very excited to be able to offer pilgrim education programs in a very engaging, hands-on way. I have a business called Liberty Encounters, and I have a website, and we're also seeking to use this as one of many resources that we can use to uh, share this message uh, to the next generation. So, Caspi, thank you so much for your help in giving us this platform to reach your wonderful audience, to spread the word and to connect. Well, you're very kind. We're glad to have you as somebody who spends a lot of time uh, digitally traipsing back and forth between England and and the U.S. This is a story that's very close to my heart because I feel like it it bridges Shakespeare with the U.S. and explains kind of how he does have a place here in our country. And I'm excited to see the unity and the patriotism of this story for sure, and certainly excited to help see it come to life. So make sure you check out the show notes for today's episodes where you can find a link to the 1620 experience as well as to Liberty Encounters. And if you're over in Savannah, Georgia, make sure you stop in and go on one of their tours. Thank you so much, David and Aaron Bradford, for being here with us this week and walking us through the history of William Bradford and the Puritans during Shakespeare's life. Time. It's been a delight talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, the show notes are where it's at for even more history. If you'd like to see the images of the pilgrims, William Bradford, Brewster, and some of the other Puritans mentioned today, along with pictures of the ships and links to the 1620 experience, along with the books and resources David and Aaron share with us today, then make sure you visit the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 170. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP170. David and Aaron are crowdfunding their miniseries project 1620 Experience that seeks to bring actors like Kevin Sorbo and others to tell the story of Bradford and his harrowing journey from England through religious persecution to the New World, where America would find its first breath of life. Some of our very foundations here as a country can be seen through the story of the pilgrims. You can be part of bringing this story to life by donating to 1620 Experience and their crowdfunding campaign. I invite you to join me in donating to their project, and you can find links for information on David and Aaron as well as the 1620 experience in the show notes for today's episode. Don't forget the video version of our show this week where you can see David and Aaron in full costume along with the victory sword and other regalia that they share with us about the pilgrims, all available in the video version for today's show. Find that and our entire video streaming library of bonus history episode about the life of William Shakespeare inside the members area of That Shakespeare Life. Check that out and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.